morning that only you could do and that you would do it for the glory of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right. Well, we're in a series um, that if you're new with us, um, where we are handling some of the tough questions, I guess you would say, that people have about Christianity. We're calling it big questions and big answers, answering some of life's toughest questions. And this is week four of that. Next week we end this series. Um, and uh, now just go ahead and preface. I had nothing to do. Um, with the air conditioning not working well this morning and needing to break out fans. The topic is hell today, um, so I need to preface that. And I had nothing to do with it. This has been planned for a while, and, uh, and so I've, I've known uh, that this was coming for a while, but I didn't know the air conditioner was going to do what it did. So I promise I had nothing to do with that. Scout's honor. I'm not a scout, but uh, pastor's honor? I don't know, but uh, I promise. And so here's the question that we're dealing with today, and that is, how can a loving God send someone to hell? This is a big one. There is no doctrine, probably in all of the Bible, that causes people to squirm more or to be straight up offended more than the doctrine of hell. It disgusts, really disgusts many unbelievers and skeptics, and many Christians seem almost embarrassed by the doctrine. Um, however, when you look at the Bible honestly, you can't help but notice it talks about hell, God's judgment, and God's wrath a lot. Um, you cannot ignore that. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, this topic is addressed a lot. Uh, this is confusing and offensive to some people. They ask, how can you say God is love? And at the same time, say that He consigns anyone to an eternity in hell. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And what I want you to see is that hell is in fact a real place, according to the God's Word. And so is God's love. And these things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you don't have to do away with one to have the other. And we're going to see that a little bit this morning as we get into the, uh, on into the message. But what I want you to understand is when we water hell down or we ignore the reality of hell, what we really ultimately end up doing is watering down God's love. You can't fully... Un- I like what Tim Keller said about this. We we're using his book, The Reason for God, as a reference throughout this, uh, much of this series. He says, you can't understand God's love without understanding hell. And I'll explain that towards the end of the message, but you really can't. And you know, here's the thing. Jesus talked about hell a lot, more than he talked about heaven. Uh, There's probably no figure in the history of the world that is considered uh, a more loving figure who taught on love and love love your neighbor, right? Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. All that comes from Jesus. And he is kind of considered this most loving figure throughout the history of the world, yet he spoke a lot about hell. And in such vivid and graphic terms that it would deeply offend some people today. They would literally escort him out of church. They would not allow him into the pulpit. He would be too not seeker-friendly enough, not seeker-sensitive enough for them. They would much rather him talk about how to manage your finances, how to prosper your life, how to be healthy and wealthy and great, and to have this positive message than a lot of what Jesus talked about, which a lot of his sermons were salted with the fires of hell. And we just can't ignore that. I mean, we can act like, you know, and try to excuse it away, but you can't read the New Testament honestly and not say, you know, Jesus talked about hell a lot. What did he mean by that? And so we're going to address that this morning uh, with the scripture text of Jesus telling a parable about hell. And we're going to look at a lot of other scriptures this morning as well. And so the, we're in Luke chapter 16, very familiar passage if you've been a long-time believer. Um, maybe newer to you if you're a new believer or not a Christian today. But Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus is talking to a group of people called the Pharisees. We've talked about them a lot here. They were the re, a group of really religious people that had a lot of things really wrong. A lot of them did. Um, they had uh, exalted their personal rules to be equivalent and really above the rules of God. And they were really a quite, and a, as, a, as a group, I'm not saying every single individual, but as a group, they were largely very oppressive towards the poor and towards the broken and towards the hurting. And uh, they were just kind of really jacked up and didn't know it. And there's nothing really worse than someone that's really messed up but thinks they've really got everything figured out. And then that was the Pharisees. And they stand throughout history as an example that you can be in the church, that you can be uh, think you're in a right relationship with God, and you can be very off course. And that was them. And Jesus, as we get to this passage, is talking to them, and he has been teaching on the issue of stewardship and money. And he makes a statement in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. He says, you cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. 
He said, you can't have two masters and you can't serve God and money. And the very next verse, Luke 16, 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so they just didn't understand his message about stewardship. And what Jesus was really driving at was that money is a spiritual indicator. See, the Pharisees are revealed uh, by Luke as being a group of people who their use of money um, showed uh, it was a spiritual indicator as well. They were a group of people that were known for um, um, stealing widows' houses, Jesus kind of referred to it as. They would, they would find ways to manipulate widows, uh, likely, into giving uh, their houses to uh, the temple so they could profit from it. And so they would ingratiate their way and manipulate these people. And they were just a very oppressive group of people. And so Jesus comes along and he addresses it, right, head on. And Jesus talked a lot about hell and he talked a lot about money. And he's letting them know that, hey, you're, you look, the way you look at money and the way you treat money in life is a spiritual indicator, right? And so he's calling people to good stewardship and to not love money but to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And your love for God and your love for neighbor is supremely revealed in your use of money. And so that's kind of what we pick up on in this parable where we come into Luke 16. A lot of times we just kind of read this story and, um, and people differ. Some people think it's an actual true story. It's, it is most likely a parable, but that does not negate the truths of it any at all. And so, so Jesus here, when we pick up on this, many times we just kind of take this out of context and we don't see it in the context of what's going on. And we just kind of take it as a story about hell. When really what it is, is it's inserted into this conversation with the Pharisees to show them ultimately, if you continue down this path of loving money, if you continue to have money as your idol and power as your idol and continue to only live for this life, ultimately forfeiting the next one, this is how it ends for you. This is how it ends. And he gives them this parable. So look with me in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may crash from, cross from there to us. Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A lot going on here in this story that Jesus delivers to the Pharisees and and, and the big principles he's trying to drive home. First of all, we see that there's two different men in the story, right? There's a rich man and there's Lazarus. The rich man had an awesome life. Very obvious. He was rich. He, had, uh, he, he was clothed in purple and fine linen. The dye in that day uh, used to, the, to make purple or purple clothing was very expensive and very rare. And so this is a symbol of his wealth that he dressed in this every day in these fine linens. And he didn't just eat. He dined, Right? He ate sumptuously every day. I mean, he was, he had everything, right? He had the five course meals. He had the, the personal chef. I mean, he lived the high life. And in context, this guy, you have to understand the Pharisees and their understanding and many people's understanding in that day. They would have viewed this guy as the goal. If there was anyone God loved and had showed favor to him in their mind, it was this guy. 
that's the goal, to have that kind of money to live well. And so they believed his wealth was a sign of him being in good favor with God. And, and, and some would tell you that the Pharisees were kind of like your first health, wealth, prosperity preachers. And so they were kind of uh, believing this. And so they were hearing the story and they're like, this guy, and they're just hearing the parable. They're a couple of verses in. They're like, yeah, sounds like life. That's the goal, right? That's some of us. Now, here's the thing. And our context is a lot removed, but is it a lot different today? Do, do people today, not in a lot of ways, see when your life is quote-unquote blessed and things are going well and the money is coming in and you have the comfortable life and things, everything seems to fall your way? It just kind of naturally think, well, things, man, they're living right, we say. That's clean living, right? Or, boy, God's really blessed them. And we do know all good things come from God. But there is an unhealthy focus, even in our day, that if things are not going well for you, like the poor man, the Lazarus, or if things are going well for you, that that somehow shows your standing with God and how God feels about you. And nothing can be further from the truth we're finding out in this story. Lazarus, on the other hand, the poor man, his life was horrible. It was horrible. He was poor. He was sick. He had these open wounds, probably from leprosy on his skin. He had one desire we know of, and that was to simply eat scraps from this other guy's table. It doesn't say he ate them. It, says, it doesn't say the guy ever gave them to him. He said that's what he longed for. I mean, just a roll that fell off the table, right, was enough for this guy. I, I think about scraps and, and that things, that back, uh, things, things like that. I think back when growing up in, in rural Alabama, we didn't have garbage disposals, right? And uh, like we have today, uh, we had woods <laughs> and tree line uh, where your property had been cleared. And so when everything was, you took the fat and the bone and whatever you didn't eat or whatever, right, that couldn't be saved, and you took it to the edge of the woods and you dumped it out for the dog to eat or whatever wild animal wandered up to eat it, right? <laughs> Some whatever, you know. And um, I think this guy's scraps were a lot better than ours were back then. But that's all this guy wants is the scraps. What my family used to feed the dogs. That's what this guy's hoping to eat. But he doesn't get that. All he gets is dogs licking the sores. Wild dogs. These are not pet, domesticated pets like we think about. These are just wild animals that roam the streets in those days. It's just really kind of a gross sight. And if this is all you know, if we just stopped right there in the first couple of verses, who do you want to be? You want to be the rich guy, unless you're not being honest this morning. He's got it made. Everything's going well for him. And the other guy's got it bad. What did he do to get in this situation? One guy is living the American dream and the other guy is living a third world nightmare. The other guy is something we see on television asking us to give money to. And also, who do you most identify with? Two verses in. Let's be honest. For all of us, for the vast majority of us, it's the rich guy. We might not be as rich as he was in our culture compared to his culture, but we are much more likely to have somebody laid up at our gate than we are to be laid up at somebody else's. That's just the truth of the matter. And so when you get into this, what you're understanding is Jesus is about to reveal something that theologians call the great reversal. You know, Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. And Jesus taught that just because things look one way in this life don't mean they're going to be that way in the next life. And that's what you see happening in here because these two different men have two very different eternities. The poor man dies and is not even given a burial that we can see. He's carried to Abraham's side, a, a term basically referring to heaven, comfort in God's presence. And this was a term signifying, like I said, paradise or heaven. And the rich man died and he, he gets buried. One gets a burial, one we're not told even has a burial. And you can imagine maybe a big funeral for a very wealthy, important person, but his eternity is vastly different, we see, than, than Lazarus's. He is in Hades, in torment. He lifts up his eyes to see Abraham and Lazarus far off. And the key word here is torment. You see it throughout the text. Torment and anguish. One person dies is in a place that the Pharisee wanted to go and would have been certain they were going. Paradise, heaven, Abraham's side. The other person is in the place that none of them want to go and none of them would have assumed they were going and that's torment. The, uh, hell, for our vernacular. The great reversal. And see, the parable is teaching there are final consequences to how you live life. And there are two clear and final destinies. One in comfort and one in torment. One in blessedness and one is damned. Now, I want to give you three truths about hell this morning. We're going to have to go to some other scriptures and stuff like that. We can't just look at... You can't press this parable too far. 
Okay, because it, it is a parable. So I, there's no sign anywhere else in Scripture, for instance, that if you're in hell, that you're going to have a conversation with someone in heaven. So I don't, I don't think that's something we take from this parable. But there are things in this parable that are supported everywhere else in Scripture. And I do believe there's obviously a big idea that Jesus is trying to drive here, and that is life matters, what you do in this life matters, and there are two ways ultimately to live life, and two ultimate different destinies, and one ends in eternal anguish and suffering, and one ends in eternal blessedness. So let me just kind of give you three things about hell that will help us hopefully in the end understand hell and God's love. And the first one's pretty simple, right? And that is hell is miserable. That's an understatement. But I didn't really know any other way to phrase this. Biblically, we would define hell as a conscious, eternal state of torment. Conscious, eternal, torment, suffering, anguish. The words you see here in the text. If you remove any of those words, you no longer have a biblical teaching on hell. Then This is uncomfortable for people. We've got loved ones. We've got friends who are lost. And so many times people come to the Word and they begin, or they just go outside the Word, but they begin to look for other, other ways. And one of those ways is universalism. Uh, universalism teaches that in the end, ultimately, love wins, right? Quote, unquote. That God's just so loving that in the end, He's just not going to allow anyone to be in hell. And in the end, everyone's going to end up in heaven. And that the Scriptures just do not teach that. You cannot find that in the Bible. You have to really do some maneuvering and some cut, copy, and pasting to be able to pull that off. And you pretty you about have to eliminate the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. Um, universalism. Another one is annihilation. And we would also say this is an unbiblical teaching. Annihilation basically says you're going to die and you either... There's two options with it. One is they teach that you just simply cease to exist when you die. That et- eternity is only for those who are saved and you're mortal and so you just simply... There's nothing when you die. And which is a problem with that because you're created in the image of God. And God is eternal. And also, it, it, another variation of annihilation it says, well, you don't just simply cease to exist. You go to hell and you suffer for a while, but at some point it's over and you're just done away with. You're just completely destroyed in the sense of the word. You no longer exist. And in a sense, what they're saying is you're, you're, the penalty for your pen has, sin has been, has been paid. You sin in a moment in time, in a, in a period of life, and so you wouldn't suffer forever. You would suffer for a while, and then it would be over. This is also not a biblical teaching, okay? And we're going to see that as we get into this. Here, here's what Jesus teaches. We see with this guy, he's in torment. He's in conscious torment. The man was very conscious. And this is in line with what Second Peter 2, 9 and 10 talks about when it talks about people right now who are, who are ungodly, who are dead, who God is able to keep in punishment, Right? And so, biblically speaking, um, there is when someone dies with Christ, they are absent from the body to be present with the Lord. They are conscious with the Lord and in His presence. And at the same time, for those who die without Christ, they are consciously away from His presence in suffering and in anguish. And then there's coming a day when everybody, the living and the dead, the Bible says, the saved and the lost will be raised from the dead, will reunited with their body, stand in front of the Lord Jesus and give an account for their life. And one group will go into heaven, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately, and spend eternity there in Christian community with Jesus. No sin, no death, no suffering, none of that. And the other group will be consigned to the lake of fire, the Bible calls it, forever. That, that, that's kind of the big picture. But we see he's in conscious torment immediately. Lifting up his eyes, it says. He's awake, he's aware of what's going on. He knew where he was and he knew where he wasn't. And maybe that's part of the torment of hell. Separation from a relationship with God is also a big component that we see here. What makes hell, hell is that it is a state of being separated from the goodness and grace of God. I don't want to just say, you can't just, sometimes we just say you're separated from God. And we have to be careful with that because God is omnipresent. The psalmist said, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. Wherever I go, God is omnipresent. What? But the Bible does say in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His mind. And what that means is, right? What that means is, is you're separated from the goodness and the grace of God. You will, not, you will not have the opportunity for a gracious relationship with God, for a loving relationship with God. All people in hell experience is God's wrath. 
in eternity. People are ultimately left to themselves in their sin, suffering God's wrath, banished from His gracious presence, and all they know is that. Now, He is said here to be in torment, to be in anguish, and then Jesus in other passages describes this torment and this anguish this way. I mean, some scriptures are going to be on the screen for you. There's several I want to read. Matthew 13, 50, Jesus says... Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark nine forty eight, he described hell this way. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew eight twelve. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, 51. Cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, these are strong, right? These are graphic terms. Vivid terms. You see the use of fire a lot with Jesus and throughout the Bible talking about hell. You see this image of fire and flames. And many times people are relieved when they read that a lot of commentators differ on whether or not that is literal fire or whether it's figurative fire. But let me tell you the truth of it this morning. If it's not literal, in the language, if it's figurative, it's always worse. So it's either literal fire or if for some reason it's not literal fire, whatever it is, it's even worse than that. It's always the case in these kind of languages, these kind of stories you see. But I wouldn't discount the fire. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? He's saying it, it, the pain, the anguish, the guilt, the shame, the being left to yourself, apart from the grace of God, and the pain that you are suffering is so bad and you are in a constant state of weeping and gnashing your teeth in pain. That is the vivid picture and probably one of Jesus' most common references to how he described hell. He said there, the worm does not die. What does that mean? Well, you need to understand that Jesus, not in this text this morning, but in a lot of the texts that we read from, Jesus, when he talks about hell, would use the word Gehenna. And this was a Hebrew word that was referencing an actual place right outside Jerusalem. And if you go back and do the historical study... Gehenna was a place where at one time the god of Molech was worshipped. And the way that they would worship the god of Molech, the, the, these idolaters, these pagans, was through child sacrifice. And so the Israelites wanted to desecrate that place. God wanted that place desecrated. And so they turned it into a trash heap. So this was like considered the worst place on the planet if you were a Jew. I mean, this was a place where a false god was worshipped. Of all things, child sacrifices were made. And then you had turned it into a trash heap to just desecrate it so it couldn't be used for any holy purpose anymore. And so it was constantly burning. Constant fire and worms eating and decaying the trash. And Jesus says, most of the time when Jesus wants to describe hell, that's what he would use. He would say, if you want to know what hell is like, it's like that place. Just this place of, I mean, just imagine what it would be like to live there is what he wants us to see. Always burning. The fire, the warmth, a place of decay, a, a place of suffering. He also described it as a place of outer darkness, we read. A dark place, not a happy place, not a joyful place. There's no light in hell. There's no joy in hell. When we think of darkness, what do we think of? What do you think of? When you, when you just think about the most dark place, you think of fear, the unknown, completely being vulnerable, loneliness, and ultimately, hopelessness. There's no hope in hell. These are all horrible pictures that Jesus paints for us of hell. But another thing that's so miserable about hell is that it's final. Abraham points out that there is a great chasm. What Jesus is conveying to the Pharisees is that it it is inescapable. You you don't get from one place to the other. You don't go from heaven to hell and you don't go from hell to heaven. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die and after this is the judgment. There are no second chances, no other chances. What you do in this life matters. How you... Everything matters. This life matters for all of eternity. And then afterwards, eternity is set. There's nothing after death but judgment. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's, it's final, guys. It's final, Pharisees. 
The rich man had received his good things when? In this life. So he wasn't getting any. He chose this life as his, as his portion. And he died without God. Without forgiveness. And he was lost. Actually, the word you see for destroy many times uh, in the New Testament, it talks about it being a place of destruction and destruction of the soul. It's the same Greek word that you see when, um, when you read the lost parable, the lost parables of the lost son and the lost coin. It talks about the coin being lost. So it doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't mean that, that like destroyed into non-existence. That would sound much better. It just means that you're lost forever. Lost and without God. And it's eternal. See, there's no insinuation in Jesus' parable that this is anything but a continued existence. It's, it's a hopeless state. It's said to be a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's said to be a place of eternal fire and eternal destruction. Revelation backs this up in Revelation 14, 10 and 11. Revelation 14, 10 and 11 says this. He also would drink, talking about the wicked, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And verses like this refute some of these theories such as universalism or the annihilation theory. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They never have rest day or night. Matthew twenty five forty six. Jesus said these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Right? They're both states of eternity. If only you suffer for a while then it's over. That would mean the penalty's paid. And as Wayne Grudem says, you should go to heaven. Your debt's been paid. But that's not the case. Now here's the thing. Some we get into this and it's horrible, right? It's eternal, it's final, it's suffering, it's torment. And we haven't got to why like why? We kind of we, we we covered that part first. Why? And the second thing I want you to understand, because this is the question that comes, is how is this just? And I want you to see, number two, hell is not just miserable. Hell is just. It is a just place. Notice in verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember when he calls out for help? He says, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things? Remember your life? You had a life? And Lazarus and Lackman are bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. There's no sense of injustice to Abraham in this story. He's calling out for mercy, for relief, but he reminds him of his life. And those chilling words, remember. And I do believe you'll have your memories there. Remember your life. The difference in these two men was one repented and by faith trusted what was revealed in the law and the prophets. And one lived for the here and now and put all his eggs in a temporary basket. A temporary basket. So why did he go to hell? Because that's part of what we need to understand the justice of this. Why did he go to hell? Jesus is not teaching that the rich go to hell and the poor go to heaven. Some people, I mean, they get kind of wacky when they read this. They go, see, the poor man's in heaven and the rich man's in hell and rich people go to hell. Well, Jesus does say it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. That shouldn't be ignored. But that's because of the entrapment of riches and our hearts proneness to idolatry. Notice whose side the rich, the poor man, that Lazarus is at. Abraham's side. You know what the Bible says about Abraham? He was rich. He was very rich. And he's in heaven in this story. It's not about whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Jesus is showing where the love of money and money as your master ultimately leads, where idolatry leads. See, the rich man showed himself to ultimately not be a child of God. Maybe like the Pharisees, he was a child of Abraham genetically, but not spiritually. He had a neighbor that the Old Testament told him he was to love as himself, that he refused to love, that he stepped over every day to get to where he was going. He was greedy and selfish, and he died greedy and selfish. He was an idolater. He loved money, and he died in his sins, an unrepentant, selfish, greedy sinner who did not love his neighbor, which the Bible teaches shows that you do not love God. See, your idol may not be money this morning. It may be success or power or influence or comfort or security or wisdom or a lot of things. But since the fall, 
since Adam and Eve in the garden, the, the storyline of the Bible is, is that we are all sinful and broken and we choose to rebel against God and replace God in our lives. We all worship something. And the rich man has shown that he replaced God with himself and his money. See, people don't go to hell because God, quote unquote, unfairly sends them there. People have chosen to rebel against God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And we have looked at whatever revelation we have been given, the Bible teaches, including just the simple revelation of creation that tells us that we should glorify God and we've rejected God. God being a just and holy God then consigns to hell sinners because it's the just penalty for their sins. See, God is not just a God of love. He is, but He's also holy and just. Therefore, He must punish sin. Listen to what Romans 1.28 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God revealed against what? Ungodliness, against unrighteousness. He says we suppress the truth. Romans 2.3 says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things after he gives a list of sins and things. It, it, the judgment of God rightly, justly falls on all of us, on sinners. See, sometimes people assume that God's love and God's wrath are at war. That somehow it's impossible to believe in a God who exhibits both wrath in a place like hell and a God of love. But this is a false understanding of God and His love. Let me read you a quote from D.A. Carson, one of the most foremost New Testament scholars in the world today. He says, There is nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed toward the same individual people at once. God and His perfections must be wrathful against His image bearers, for they have offended Him, His holiness. God and His perfections must be loving toward His rebel image bearers, for He is that kind of God. You see, Carson goes on to explain how we need to understand that God is love and God is holy. But God's wrath is an expression of the offense of His holiness. In other words, when there is sin, God's holiness is offended and there is wrath. When there is no sin, there is no wrath. That's why God's wrath will not be expressed in heaven or the new heaven and the new earth because God is holy, but there is no sin there. And so there is no reason for Him to express that wrath. But God always is expressing His love towards us. God loves you because God is love. As Carson says, it's not in the beauty of the thing. It's in God Himself. And God is wrathful justly when His holiness has been offended. But as, where there is no sin, there is no wrath. And where there is sin, there must be wrath. Because God is holy and just. Imagine a judge. And imagine a murderer standing in front of this judge. And the evidence is overwhelming. Witness after witness is called. There is video footage of the murder. And the judge is sitting there and he takes the gavel and the guilty murderer stands in front of him and the judge slams the gavel down and says, I declare you guilty and you're off, you know, to prison for the rest of your life. Nobody would stand up, maybe other than that guy's mama, nobody's going to stand up in that courtroom and go, you are the most unloving judge I've ever heard of in my life. You're not loving! How can you do that? You don't love. It has nothing to do. He might be the most loving man on the planet. He might be a great family guy. He might, he might be very loving. But that has nothing to do with the law. And that has nothing to do with justice. But people take God and they put Him over here and they say, Well, how can you... How can that be loving? It's just. It's just. And God is not just a God of love. He is a God of love. But He's also holy. And He's just. People ask, well, how can it be just to suffer forever for sins committed in a lifetime? I mean, it's one thing to be punished for sin. Why forever? See, two reasons. When you sin, you sin against an infinitely holy, just God. I've used this illustration before. If you sin against a rock, you haven't done very much. If you sin against a tree, you've done a little bit more. There's actually some laws about that. You sin against an animal, you've done even more and you might end up in prison, right? You sin against another person or you kill another person. It's bad. It's an image bearer of God. And it increases depending on who you're sinning against, right? And if you sin against an infinitely holy, an infinitely wise, an infinitely loving God, the only just punishment is an infinite sentence. 
an eternal sentence is just for sinning against an eternal, infinite, holy God. Who are we to look at God and tell Him what justice is? See, the second reason is in hell, people continue to sin, I believe. Hell does not fix you. It is not remedial. It is, it is not a place you go to get better. People don't wise up in hell. You know why? You know what leads you to repentance? God's kindness leads you to repentance, the Bible says. The Spirit of God moves on your heart. The Bible says you can't come to faith in Christ apart from hearing the gospel. Well, here's what's not in hell. Gospel preaching, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to move you towards God, the kindness of God because you're only experiencing His rest. So you know what happens to people in hell? They continue to seethe in their sin and to grow in their rejection against God. They continue to shake their fist and gnash their teeth against the God of heaven. They don't get better. They don't wise up and they don't repent. Do you think the rich man is any better? Does the rich man seem like a better guy? What does he do? He's in hell and he says, can you get Lazarus? I see him. That's the old guy that used to lay outside my gate. Have him come to hell and bring me some water. He looks at Lazarus no different than he looked at him when he was walking, walking over him in his driveway. He, ain't, he hasn't changed. He said, well, he wants his brothers to not go to hell. Adolf Hitler probably didn't want his brothers to go to hell. That doesn't make you a good person. That makes you not a monster. Right? I mean, he's no better. He's the same guy, the same selfish individual. He wouldn't ask Abraham to bring him water. No, send Lazarus to just give me a little dip. Right? And what Jesus is showing us here, I believe, in this whole parable is that this guy lived one way, he died, and he spent eternity, and it was just a continuation of his existence. There's no repentance in hell. See, that's the difference in punishment and discipline. See, we don't really punish our children as much as we discipline them, right? The goal is not when your child does something wrong and you punish or you discipline them, it's not just to, well, you did wrong and this is what you deserve. No, we discipline them so they won't do it again, right? That's the goal. It's, 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 it's that they will get better and that they will grow and that they will mature and not repeat their behavior and make their better choices. That's not the purpose of hell. It's punishment. It's not to help you make better choices. It's to pay for the choices you made. But the good news of the Bible is Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. And turn back from your evil ways. Turn back from your evil ways. He says, for why will you die, O house of Israel? What does God say? I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't take pleasure in this. I don't want this. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish. But that all should reach repentance. Right now, the reason the mouth of hell does not open and swallow every lost person on the planet is the patient kindness of God in leading people to repentance. God, That's the good news of the Bible. Is that yes, God is loving, and yes, God is holy, and yes, God is just, but He is patient and gracious. And the third thing you need to understand about hell is it is absolutely avoidable. It is avoidable. At the end of the story, in verses 27 through 30, 31, he begins to beg, right? He begs, Father, I beg you, Father, send, send, to them my, to my, send him to my father's house. Since you won't let him come here, let him go to my father's house. Because I've got brothers and I want them warned unless they come into this place of torment. In verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone rises from the dead, if somebody goes from the dead, then they will repent. And he says, no, they won't. If they won't listen to the prophets and if they won't listen to Moses, then they're not going to be convinced that someone rises from the dead. See, Moses, excuse me, Abraham says, they need to hear Moses and the prophets. They need to hear them. They need to heed the word of God is the teaching here from Jesus. And that was another theme you see in Luke leading up to this point. Is Jesus is teaching how the law continues. And the one thing you need to understand is that the Pharisees were always looking for a sign from Jesus. Jesus did all kinds of miracles, all kinds of signs. He did all kinds of things to prove he was the Messiah. And there was never enough for the Pharisees. And they were always asking for a sign, the Bible says, ultimately so they could catch him. And hopefully he would do something they could use against him to ultimately, you know, try to run him off or get him killed or something. 
But they were always asking for more. More evidence. And so this is a rebuke to them. And Jesus is saying this. Or Abraham is saying this. He's saying, your brothers are not lost because there's not enough evidence. They're lost because they refuse to heed the word of God. There's plenty of evidence. He says, if someone rose from the dead and came back from hell, or came back from heaven and walked in and said, hey, I died, I went to heaven, your brother died, he's in hell, you should know it's all real. Change. He's saying they would not change. Is that not crazy? You think, I would change? I mean, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, I'm not a believer, but I'm telling you, if Grandpa came back and said, heaven's real and hell's real, I would believe. Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. That even a miracle, an outside external miracle will not convince you because it takes an internal miracle. It takes an internal miracle. They're not going to hell because they don't have enough evidence. They're going to hell because they have hard hearts. They're going to hell because they're sinners. They're going to hell because they've rebelled. And it's going to take a change of heart that creates a change of behavior. They need to repent. And a miracle in and of itself is not going to lead them to repentance. You say, how do you, how do you know that Jesus proved his point? He raised a man named Lazarus, strangely enough, from the dead. And they tried to kill him. They wanted Lazarus dead. Because he was back from the dead. And they didn't like this. <laughs> They didn't say, oh, Jesus is clearly the Messiah. Instead, they said, find Lazarus and kill him. Then Jesus rises from the dead. And you know what they did? They punished and and beat and killed his followers. Two resurrections. Not a lot of change for some of these men. Some of these people. The big truth here is that their problem is not a lack of evidence. It's a sinful, hardened, rebellious heart. If you are an unbeliever today, the reason you do not believe, I just want you to understand, I mean this in the most loving way, it's not because you don't have enough evidence. It's because you're a sinner. It's the same reason I didn't believe for a a portion of my life. It wasn't because there wasn't enough evidence. It didn't matter the evidence. It's because I needed an inward miracle, the change of heart. How does that happen? God does it. It happens by the work of the Spirit of God moving on a heart And the primary tool that the Bible says he uses and the tool that he will use is the Word of God. That's why he points them to the Law of the Prophets. Abraham said they have Moses and the Prophets. Let them hear them. See, the Law and the Prophets pointed them to their sinfulness and their need for grace and their need for a Messiah. People in the Old Testament were saved, by the way, by grace through faith, just like you and I are. Sometimes people get confused on that. Like in the Old Testament, they were saved by works. In the New Testament, they were saved by grace. No, they were saved by grace through faith. The cross stands here. And the people in the Old Testament looked forward to it in faith. And we stand over here and we look back at it in faith. And the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, pointed them to their sinfulness, to God's grace, and their need to trust Him, and to trust the coming Messiah. All that was there. It was there. That's why He's pointing them to it. He said, that's the tool that the Spirit of God uses to do the miracle in your heart to cause you to believe. It's not science. It's not outside evidence. It's not even somebody raising from the dead. He will use His Word. He will use His Word to convince you. He will use His Word to change you. And see, if you could just get scared up enough about hell and its reality, that would not change your heart. It wouldn't change my heart. It wouldn't change our hearts. It takes the Spirit of God doing this in us, and He uses the Word of God to bring about this change. You know, the Bible says that the Old Testament, the prophets, it's all about Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, at the end of the Gospel, Luke 24 24, verses 25 to 27, after Jesus has been crucified and after his resurrection, he meets with some of the disciples and this is what he says. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is all, even at this point in his ministry, he's pointing them to something, and that is, the truth's there. You've had it for all this time, and you're ignoring it. Hell is avoidable, but you don't need more evidence. You need to believe the gospel, the good news that is revealed in both the Old and the New Testament, the good news of Jesus. The Old Testament taught that God would send the Messiah, and it also taught that he would suffer, that he would die, and it also, in Isaiah 53, that he would rise. 
And the New Testament shows us that the Messiah is Jesus. He fulfilled the prophecies. And the ones not yet fulfilled, he will fulfill on his return. And hell is avoidable because Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. And he has come and done exactly what the prophets foresaw. And what he did was this. He satisfied the wrath of God. Isaiah 53.10, Old Testament, prophets. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How can a loving God send people to hell? Listen to Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This happened. This was prophesied long before Jesus came. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was God's will to crush him. Why did Jesus die on the cross? It was God's will to crush him. What happened on the cross? God crushed him. Paul said it this way in Romans 3. Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big fancy word that means God, that Jesus satisfied God's wrath by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that, here it is, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the great riddle of the Bible is not how can God consign people to hell. It's how can He consign anybody to heaven. And the answer to the riddle is Jesus. Because Jesus satisfies God's wrath. Jesus endures God's wrath in our place so that we can have our, His righteousness applied to us. He has our sin and He takes it on so that God can pass over us. So that God can forgive us. So that God can treat us as though we're righteous even though we're not. That is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus on the cross didn't just take nails and, and, and a beating and a crown of thorns. But that the wrath of God was emptied on him. That he took the full cup. The Bible speaks of God's wrath as being in a cup. And he turned it up and he drank every last drop and drained it dry. For everyone who will believe in Him, you can escape God's wrath. See, we think, what did Jesus, what do you get saved from when you get saved? You get saved from your sin. That's why your life should change. You get saved from your sin, and you get saved from God. And you get saved to God. You get saved from His wrath and to eternal relationship and love and fellowship with Him. Jesus died for your sins, and Jesus died for God. So that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the very heart of the gospel. In Christ, the justice of God is satisfied. On the cross, what's happening? Jesus took hell for you. He took hell for you. Hell is the wrath of God being poured out on sinners for all of eternity. It's being cast out of the presence of God and bearing His wrath by yourself. And Jesus did that for you. Though He was innocent, though He was not guilty, He died for the guilty so the guilty could go free and not just go free, be made righteous. The rich man did not have to go to hell. Neither did his brothers in the parable. And the rich man knew what needed to happen. He says, what? Send him a guy raised from the dead and he will, they will repent. Repent. There it is. Why is he in hell? He lived in his sin. He died in his sin. He never repented. The message of the kingdom is repent, 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 and believe the gospel. It's a turning from sin and self and to God. It's a change of mind that leads to this change of direction, this change of behavior, and you embrace Jesus and what he's done for you. Christianity teaches the reality of an eternal conscious suffering in hell of lost sinners, but it also teaches that God the Son, 
God the Son, God Himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has come and bore the penalty of hell, the penalty for sinners. He has suffered. Like I said at the beginning, Tim Keller says, you'll never understand the love of God without fully understanding hell because the supreme picture of God's love is the cross. And if you don't understand hell, you don't understand what happened on the cross. So, you want to understand God's wrath towards sin and the ugliness of sin and the holiness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God? Look at the cross. And if you want to understand the love of God, the grace of God, and the forgiveness of God, and the mercy of God, look at the cross. Because those two things are mingled together in a blood-soaked Jesus who on the cross shows God's love, expresses God's love, and bears God's wrath. Today, maybe you need to repent. I know this is a heavy message. There hasn't been a lot of jokes today because, to be honest, there's just no cute way to talk about this. If you believe it's real, and I do, then that means some of you are going to go to hell if you don't repent and believe the gospel unless every single person in this room is a follower of Jesus Christ. And I hope you are, but I've lived long enough to know that's not true. Probably. And so if you need Jesus today, I hope and I plead with you that you will repent and believe the gospel. And as a church, we need to recommit ourselves to the Great Commission. Yeah, because God tells us to, but also because hell's real and we love people. And we've got neighbors and friends and family members that are going to go to hell if they don't repent and believe the gospel. They can avoid hell, but they can do more than avoid hell. They can have life. They can know God. Christianity's not just about avoiding hell. It's not. So what are you at today? What do you need to do? Do you need to repent and believe the gospel? Are you a Christian today that needs to recommit yourself? Maybe there's somebody you need to pray for during this time and you just need to take some time and pray for a lost friend, co-worker, family member. Maybe you need to look for an opportunity to share with them and just continue to pray for them and to get them in front of the gospel because their only hope is that they will hear and heed the words of this book. All of our hope. All of our hope. They don't need more evidence. They need an internal miracle by the Spirit of God, opening their eyes to see the truth of the gospel and they need to repent. So let's pray for them that that will happen.